Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Wearing masks and taking names, it's election shock therapy. We're all here. We're all in the same geophysical space, guys. Kind sort of. of. But we're all in our own offices. I know. We're not together podcasting. Still. So I could knock on the wall of my office and Kukum could hear me. Um, (laughs) We're also podcasting We can take off our masks and so we can see each other's faces. But uh, we're here actually in the same uh, set of buildings at Bethel University. I'm Chris Moore. And joining me on this still Google Hangout are... Andy Bramson. And Matt Kukum. Hi, guys. um, I'm, I'm just... Man, I don't know. It's school is weird. Uh, the semester is weird. This will be the weirdest year of my teaching career. But <laughs> I'm just glad to be back. It's just nice to see the top half of people's faces in the hallway. Um, <laughs> to figure out if someone's smiling at you or just seems confused. That's nice. Yep. Um, syllabus day, but you can't pass out a syllabus because if you pass out papers, you have to use rubber gloves. So I just, you know, <laughs> it's just nice to be back. <laughs> yep. 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 I agree. It's better than what we had. So hopefully yeah. it will last as long as possible. Exactly. Right. May, may it ever endure. Yes. Uh, we are here uh, in our offices and together to talk about um, some of the more recent political events. Uh, we were joined you last week and we wrapped up the Democratic National Convention. The Republican National Convention was just kicking off. So we want to take a little bit of time and talk about what we learned from the RNC and what that might tell us about American politics more generally. Then we're going to turn towards the other big issue in the United States right now beyond the pandemic, which is uh, ongoing protests and unrest and police violence in various um, urban areas around the United States and what role that might play in electoral politics. And then by the end of the t- our time, we're going to talk, look ahead to the election and talk a little bit about what problems we might foresee as we approach November and perhaps hopefully what the United States can do to mitigate some of those problems. But let's start more approximately with the RNC guys. Uh, how much of the conventions, be honest, did you uh, consume like as a, as a political scientist, do you, someone asked me this, I'm asking you this. Do you enjoy <laughs> watching the conventions? Not really. Um, <laughs> I mean, so it is kind of a spectacle that you can watch, um, you know, like like a train wreck in slow motion, perhaps. Um, you know, if, if you want, um, if you want, you know, uh, serious discussions about you know how to solve real political problems, um, the right. conventions are not a good place to go. No. If you want to see a spectacle and you want to see the sides posturing um, and see how what trying what kind of message they're trying to communicate. Um, what sort of electoral strategy they might be pursuing, um, then yeah, it's it's a good place to to go see um, what yep. they're showcasing. Yep, I agree. I think so. I my way of following it was to actually follow the whole five thirty eight live blog, yeah. um, which I sometimes got to do live, and sometimes I kind of caught up on afterward. Um, that gave me a pretty good sense of kind of what went down, and then I selectively watched people that I was particularly interested in, or on occasion people that got highlighted in the live blog where I thought, well, that sounds interesting. Let's see what happened there. Um, and that was kind of my way of following it. So I, I enjoy doing the live blog thing. I enjoy um, watching certain people, but I certainly don't sit there and just consume everything they throw at me. Which, yeah, uh, it, it is interesting. Um, you know, just to, to see, you know, the different reactions that people were having to the conventions um, because, you know, I, I would, go to my Facebook feed um, as the conventions were happening. And it was like there were four different conventions, actually, instead of two, right? Because there's the Republicans viewing and the Democrats each viewing the Democratic election, and of course, then both viewing the Republican convention. And 
And you would have thought there were two different conventions going on at the same time, just wildly different impressions um, yeah. of, of what was being signaled and what, what the priorities of the party were, um, assessments of the speakers and how, how good of a job they did, like the whole thing. It was, it was very interesting to, to sort of um, take, in the, uh, yeah. take in the conventions through sort of the partisan eyes of my, of my Facebook friends who are across the political spectrum. Yeah. That's true, very true. It, it's troubling uh, to see that on social media because it reminds me how much we're prisoners of our preconceptions, how, uh, yep. how much our biases just, I, I, I can't imagine um, a, one of my more conservative friends watching a Joe Biden speech about anything and saying, yeah, he nailed it and vice versa. Uh, Trump could right. literally recite uh, the Gettysburg Address and liberals would probably say, I can't believe he would say such awful things. What a travesty. Um, right. What a shame in the American, <laughs> American populace. I know. It's, it, it, it's troubling. Uh, polarization is troubling. In fact, I'm actually signing uh, work in my classes this semester to think about polarization and if anything can be done about it. Um, but, guys, right. with that in mind uh, and sort of just acknowledging that's the case, we said, by way of reminder, last week that the overriding themes that the Democrats wanted us to take away from the Democratic National Convention were Joe Biden is a nice guy. Joe Biden is a stable guy. Lots of people <laughs> like Joe Biden, including nice Republicans and really liberal Democrats. Like yep. those, those are some of the big themes of the DNC. Yep. There wasn't a lot of policy. What are some of the themes of the RNC? Law and order. Um, if you let elect the Democrats, you should expect the country to descend into chaos, or I guess further into chaos. Um, and so you need the Republicans who are serious about enforcing the law. I, that was a big theme um, that I thought came out um, in the RNC. Yeah, you got um, so the law and order, you got sort of the uh, culture wars um, yeah. sorts of themes as well. Um, you had um, quite a bit of time. So you didn't get a lot on policy. You got some on policy, um, but you did get quite a bit on um, sort of attempts to portray Trump as a good and strong and um, empathetic leader. Right. And they did this by, yeah. you know, having these interesting sort of like panels in which Trump was dialoguing with citizens. You had people talk about how empathetic Trump is or, or sort of his yeah. good leadership qualities. Um and um, sort of a trying to sort of soften the, the image that Trump has, at least enough to bring some of the sort of the, the wavering um, people who might have supported him back in 2016, kind of do some things to try to bring them back into the fold. There was also a lot of implicit trying to answer the charge without actually really talking about it, that Republicans are racist. Um, and so they had a, a lot of African-Americans um, speaking and, you know, the 538 was um, observing, I think this is right, um, that this wasn't so much to necessarily get the African-American vote out for Trump, because that's probably not going to happen, but to reassure um, kind of white voters in particular that it's okay to vote for this party. See, we're not racist. There are an awful lot of African-Americans who are backing us, right? And so there was, that was kind of a, maybe a, not a sub theme, but a, a theme they didn't want to like say in so many words, um, but that was definitely there. And then yeah. just to reinforce what Matt said, I mean, I think it's, it was interesting, like, you know, we had the Joe Biden is a really nice guy. Look at all the public things Joe Biden's done. With the version with Trump was behind closed doors. I've seen Don, seen Donald Trump be really kind, right? Uh, because it's sort of like they they again don't want to say like he's really rude in person, um, but they want to say like, but he really at, at heart, deep down, right? He's a really good guy. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> you know, again, kind of acknowledging the problem without actually saying it. Right. Yeah. It was interesting to see the the Republican sort of speaker lineup because a lot of the citizens that spoke um, were like immigrants and minorities and not just African-Americans. I mean, you had quite a quite an array. Um, you had a naturalization ceremony at the at the White House, which is interesting. Not a whole lot of mentions of like, you know, build the wall and, you know, stop the caravan. Not a whole lot of that, but actually quite a bit of sort of embracing. Um, the good that immigrants can bring, um, and it really quite a switch in some ways yep. from, from the sort of rhetoric that we've been seeing um, over the past, you know, for three and a half years. Um, yep. And like Andy said, I don't know if that's gonna um, that's gonna convince a lot of African Americans, but um, Hispanics and Asian Americans might be a little squishier on that. Like there might be a little bit more give there, and of course, as well, this can be a, a 
um, allow the moderates to feel sort of more comfortable um, with um, with voting Republican. Um, they, they can feel reassured that you know voting on a Republican ticket you know is does not mean that they're racist. Yep. Yeah, I agree with you. For many white Americans, there is uh, no sturdier shield against accusations of racism than I have a black friend, right? right. And so That's if you can put uh, you know, key individuals in front of the, the party, it doesn't take much. Uh, that can, they can be trotted back out in film clips and campaign commercials, uh, which yeah. are remind people it's okay to vote for Trump. Uh, he's, right. he's not really racist. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think that's an important and powerful message. And I think it actually uh, doesn't undermine uh, Trump's um, support from the far right, uh, maybe more populist, maybe even more um, uh, white nationalist, because A, those, that, that group of self-identified people is quite small in number, but B, right. they're not, there's nowhere else they're going to go either, right? True. Um, so this is probably a good strategy for, for both campaigns. Uh, all things considered, given the state of the pandemic world, I think both campaigns get pretty high, or pretty both parties get pretty high marks for their conventions. Both of them went off significantly better than I would have expected. Um, they mm -hmm. seemed more natural, well-produced events than I thought might have happened given the circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I mean, I'll, I'll just make a couple of comments. I and mean, one is they both they made very different choices in how they did the conventions. So you know, the Democrats mm -hmm. treated it much more like a kind of almost extended infomercial. You have a kind of celebrity host who's like you know sending you off to this corner and that corner of the kind of um, you know video universe, if you will, right? And watch this or that. Um, Republicans used a kind of more classic setting um, for most of the speeches. It was kind of a convention hall without the audience, right? And so you have people kind of marching up to the same podium, giving speeches. Um, so very different feel. And then they had some of the prominent speeches um, in very particular locations, um, like the White House, um, the Rose Garden, or Fort McHenry, um, to you know talk about Trump's, Melania's, and um, uh, Pence's respectively, which brings to this, me to the second point I'd make about the Republican convention, which is, I mean, there were some pretty big norm violations, right? Um, in terms of like what you, what is okay, right? So one of the issues we, we do get into is, you know, when, when you have a, an incumbent president running for reelection, this person is, of course, a political leader of our country, as well as being a candidate for office, right? Um, and how do you, how do you, sort of reconcile those two. I mean, how do you avoid kind of unduly using the power of the presidency um, in ways that are inappropriate? And there were some concerns that Trump maybe skated too close to that line. So I mean, even things like the naturalization ceremony, which was effective, I think, but you know, is that appropriate to be used as a political prop? I mean, it's part of maybe his official duties as president. It's not something a candidate for office can do, right? Um, using the White House, um, you know, as a location to give a speech and, you know, plastering a campaign poster on the front of the White House, essentially, right? Like, is that appropriate? Um, and, you know, again, at, at best, he skated very close to some lines. At worst, he, he violated. Um, so I think it's, it raises some interesting questions there as well. Can I introdu uh, introduce here just one political fact that people might have seen in the news, make sure that we as political scientists do our due diligence and define this for them. What is the Hatch Act? Oh, I get them up. <laughs> or I can um, hit my own song. I was deferring to the American. Go, go ahead, Dr. Moore. Okay. So this was this the Hatch Act, the term of the Hatch Act got dropped a bunch around these conversations about Trump holding uh, campaign parts of the convention at the White House, uh, using the White House Rose Garden as a as a right. venue for right. accepting the nomination. And the Hatch Act doesn't apply to the candidate. So this actually doesn't apply to President Trump. Right. This applies right. to everyone around him. Uh, right. Government employees are not supposed to use government time to do campaign work. So right. if you are the president's chief of staff, you should be spending your time being the chief of staff and running the White House, not yeah. helping run the president's campaign. But this goes all the way down, even to the level of low-level functionaries, even to the level of the Secret Service, even to the level of of, of, of U.S. military personnel yep. who are stationed at the White House and who were used in pictures in the Rose Garden, standing at doorways, standing at attention, so much so that the uh, Pentagon actually had to issue a statement saying the soldiers that you saw on TV were not there to be on TV. They were to open doors for dignitaries, including the president. 
they were not uh, basically they're trying to disavow themselves right. as political props, right. but yep. easier said than done when you're showing up on TV. So the Hatch Act, yep. in many ways, was repeatedly violated by a whole bunch of people in order to have some of these campaign events um, on government property and government grounds. Yeah. yeah, and it's not just, I mean, it could have been violated if it wasn't on government grounds, too. Right. Um, but right. obviously, what, what you saw Trump do was... Um, was an acceleration of a trend that we've seen for a while. Um, I mean, sort of Mike Pompeo's sort of speech from um, yeah. from Jerusalem was, you know, Exhibit A um, uh, for the RNC this go around. And it's interesting, you know, these government officials they can't say like, "I am Secretary of State." I mean, he didn't. He said, you know, I am, in, but everyone knows that he is, right? He right. sort of said it in a roundabout way, and then he gives kind of a campaign speech, you might say, for um, for President Trump. And, of course, he's, you know, in Jerusalem, um, you know, giving this sort of recorded address, um, just sort of right. demonstrating, you know, signaling a certain way, you know, the power of the presidency, um, the effectiveness of, of the president in foreign policy, and using that as a platform. Um, of course, he's not the first... Um, sort of, you know, secretary, cabinet level secretary to do this. Um, President Obama had six cabinet secretaries speak at the DNC back in 2012. Um, but yep. so Trump has basically taken this trend that we've seen and he's sort of stomped on the accelerator, right? Um, and yep. pushed us further um, into sort of violating certain sorts of norms. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and it is a weird year. I mean, we should note, right? I mean, I think, um, you know, so I think that's where it gets tricky. I mean, like, where, what are the lines for some of these things, right? I mean, um, like, I mean, when you're working as a, a personal assistant or a close assistant to the president, right? I mean, your work does kind of cross over, right? I mean, it's not easy to distinguish something between the work of government and the president's reelection campaign, right? I mean, there's, there is some crossover. And in a time of pandemic, right? I mean, maybe it makes sense to speak from the White House. But, you know, some people were drawing the distinction, like, the, you know, Melania Trump's speech from the Rose Garden, which felt quite, you know, like... Uh, that's perfectly legit. Here's the first lady giving a speech from her own house, right? That's maybe okay. Felt different to people than like Trump plastering. It, you know, there's a real question there. I mean, like, is, you know, where the line is, and, it, and I, I think it's important to acknowledge it is fuzzy sometimes, but it does feel like at times the president and his administration crossed it. And, you know, to kind of wrap that up, I'd say, and none of this is really going to matter. Um, <laughs> You know, the partisans already are fixing their positions on what all this means and how to interpret yep. it. And most moderates really aren't going to care. Um, yep. They care more about sort of the, the impacts that, you know, the, uh, you know, the political parties are having on or potentially having on their own lives. So, yep. um, so, you know, if you're a pundit, if you're a political scientist, if you're interested right. in politics, all of this matters and we can get worked up about it. And, you know, we should be concerned about certain things, but yep. is it going to matter electorally? Probably not. Right. I think that's right. And, and that actually bears out in the public opinion polling as well, yeah. because even compared to other campaign seasons, both candidates had a more muted uh, convention bounce than typically have. Yeah. So oftentimes yeah. Yeah. a candidate will go up in the polls at least a little bit following their conventions. Donald Trump did go up a couple points, which is to say he closed yeah. the gap on Biden nationally by a couple of points. I think he's down six now, uh, where he was down sort of eight before. So a two-point yep. bounce is not much. Biden actually, in some ways, did worse. Uh, nationally, he exhibited almost no bounce. Uh, right. but what changed for Biden, which I think his campaign can celebrate perhaps, is his uh, likability numbers went up quite significantly. So people who uh, people, people would say they supported Biden more, but people liked him a whole lot more, which might be a sign that people who were going to vote Democrat anyway or probably leaning Democrat became more enthusiastic about voting for Joe Biden. Yeah. Yeah. I think what you're seeing is a consolidation of, of you know, people coming back home, right, on both sides. Um, yep. And, you know, I thought, and I think probably what you've seen over the past three, you know, well, one or two years is, you know, increasing sort of wavering by sort of people who voted, who held their nose and voted for Trump back in 2016 and are really unsure about Trump this go around. Um, and after the conventions, you know, are saying like, okay, I can hold my nose again. Um, even though I don't like certain things about him, he's he's the best, you know, for X, Y, or Z reasons. And so it's kind of hard to determine, you know, whether or not, you yeah. know, the conventions ha had, you know, the RNC had a specific impact. It's hard to tease that out from uh, the impact of, you know, the recent um, violence and protest. And it's just hard to tease that out yeah. from, um, 
what we knew all along was going to be a narrowing of the race, right? right. We, we, you know, been talking about this already that the race is probably going to narrow after the conventions as people sort of sort themselves back into their original groups, right? And so that's going on too. It's hard to tease out, you know, what what is causing, you know, what particular is causing an impact on these movements in the polls. Yep. And it is interesting that even though the polls haven't narrowed all that much yet, but the, you know, they've tightened some, um, the betting odds have tightened much more, right? And that's always yeah. interesting. Like, that's how people feel like it's going. And so even though, you know, Trump is still trailing in national polls by about six points on average, um, you know, that right now, betters feel like it's 50-50, whereas, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it was, you know, more like, you know, 60-something to 30-something. Um, Biden over over Trump, right? So it is that it kind of expectations have tightened, and I think where that is partly coming from is um, the sense that okay, that yeah, that convention went well um, for the president, right? And um, and also like the fact that you know the the polling in swing states is a lot tighter than the national, and so you know it is very likely I would say that Joe Biden will win the popular vote, but that is a different question. Um, than whether Joe Biden will win the presidency, right? And, right? and there's an acknowledgement of that, which we're all much more aware of after, you know, Trump lost by over two points in the popular vote last time and still won the election quite handily. Can we yeah. add one of the things you just mentioned, Andy? Because you mentioned uh, uh, betters. Um, so people, yeah. people essentially catch, casting wagers on on the presidential outcome, and, that, and the numbers are very even there. Yep. Wh who are these betters? Where are they betting at? Uh, <laughs> and... What as, as political scientists, what do we make of this kind of way of measuring uh, people's expectations? I honestly don't have a deeper answer for you on the kind of who are they, where are they betting? They're they're. I mean, I know they're they're putting actual money on it, right? So they actually this reflects a sort of degree of confidence and unwillingness to invest in it. But beyond that, I confess my knowledge of the betting world is slim. I will say though, it does usually reflect something about um kind of the way things are going um but. exactly um and so i mean there's different betting markets and so some are you know more bullish on certain certain uh, candidates and others so there's that so i think the thing about betting markets is it gives you a sense of it gives you a way to read how the populace is understanding the current narrative right mm -hmm. yeah. because betting markets from from what I've gathered, they tend to follow um, sort of the current trend or the narrative. So, so the betting market is sometimes the, these betting markets sort of um, go further in, I don't know how, how you would say it. They tend to overestimate um, certain trends and their importance, yeah. right? So what you're seeing right now is, I mean, just look at the 538 polling average, right? So in the past few weeks, um, the the difference, Biden's gone from a 9.2 lead to a 7.1 lead. Not all that much, but you're getting all of these narratives about, oh, Trump has turned a corner and you have all of, you know, it's like, right. this is a significant change in the race and betting markets tend to sort of reflect that kind of conventional sort of wisdom yep. that is built around the narrative, even though in actuality, um, that two-point change doesn't mean a whole lot. And if you look at the 538 forecast, um, we've gone from, you know, Biden wins, you know, in 72% of the simulations to Biden wins 69 out of 100 simulations, which is a very, very small right. change. And so, so these betting markets tend, at this point, they tend to sort of reflect the current narrative and narratives can be overwrought and overemphasize what's going yep. on now. So, so I encourage you not, don't only look at the, the polling yep. averages, but take a look at the 538 model. And the model, you know, is, is conservative in the sense that it doesn't sort of overestimate um, current effects. And, and, and yeah. you can listen to uh, Nate Silver explain the model and read about it. But basically, as we get further into the election, the model will become more and more responsive to changes in polling because um, the amount of uncertainty that we get that we have decreases as we get closer to the election. But we're still right. we're still far enough out. We can get a lot of sort of fluctuations week in, week out. Yeah. So don't put too much stock in, you know, particular changes from from week to week, especially this far out. Right. I think that's a really wise, and I, I'll just add, uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned Nate Silver in 538. We mentioned betting markets here. I want to clarify for listeners, uh, there are some warring camps within the political science world. And at the risk of oversimplification, I want to identify <laughs> three of those camps because we've mentioned two of them now. Uh, Nate Silver, 
for uh, generally looks in deep ensconce at betting markets. He does not. Uh, yes. He does not like them. He does not believe in them. But Nate Silver is also criticized fairly heavily by a number of, of American politics political scientists because of his some of his own presuppositions. Uh, so let's start with Silver. Silver uh, is a is a statistician. He's a polling aggregator. So what he argues is, if I one poll might be biased or one poll might have some flaws, but if I can get a bunch of pretty good quality polls and I can figure out how good the quality is, I can come up with a really strong model of expectations of how people are actually going to perform at any given time. And that's what he bases his voting model on. Now he adds a, a number of other things into the, into the recipe when he cooks his model, which include um, expectations about the economy. He's actually even modeling for expectations of how he thinks COVID is going to progress through November, a whole bunch of other things as well. But at the end of the day, you would label Silver as a, I would say as a, as a political agnostic. Um, he's not particularly interested in deep political knowledge. He's only really interested in, in public opinion and um, modeling public opinion as, as, as effectively as he can. And a lot of political scientists are critical are skeptical of that because essentially he's he's avoiding re looking at the political literature. He's avoiding looking at um, at a lot of history and, and sort of trying to make any inferences from historical right. patterns rather than just uh, what the current polling trends are. Which is not entirely fair because if you actually read him closely, like listen to the stuff like his podcast, which I do regularly actually recommend and read his stuff. He actually does engage with some of that fairly seriously. Um, I do find it interesting that in 16, um, he was, um, there were very few political scientists that took seriously the, the idea that Trump could win. Yep. Um, and I knew a lot of them, right? Um, and it had conversations with them and most of them had written Trump off. Um, but yep. Nate Silver was, you know, one of the few along the way that it said, hey, you know, like in 30% of the simulations, Trump wins. Like that's, that's, that's not nothing. Um, and this right. is a real possibility. Um, and yeah, so I, so I think you should um, take what the American political science community uh, says with, with a grain of salt, um, given their, their past track record. I think it's also fair to say perhaps that um, Silver it draws a fair amount of criticism because he's probably a lot has a lot larger reputation than a lot of political scientists. Yeah, um, and and they're jealous. I think <laughs> news celebrity of some sort. Yeah, yeah. But but in, um, I think both the typical political scientist crowd as well as Silver would unite to uh, to criticize some of the betting markets because the yes, betting markets sure. are even more agnostic about yep. political knowledge. They're literally just looking at how people are, are casting wagers and the supposition being yep. that if actual money is on the line, then you probably take your guess seriously. And one person might be wrong with a serious guess, but a million ants can't be wrong. So if you get a large enough betting pool of everyone taking the bet seriously, you should get a pretty good approximation of what a lot of people think is going to happen. But Matt, you're exactly right. The, uh, th that group can then be overreactive to certain yep. kinds of of um, certain kinds of new events and novel events, which elections are full of. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, we need to transition on. Thanks for walking <laughs> there with me, guys. Um, can we talk a little bit about um, one of the other issues that might influence the election this fall, and that is uh, the messy world of police violence, protest and mass unrest. And I'm going to start with Andy here. Uh, one of the areas that Andy and I overlap, he's a comparative political scientist, I'm an international relations guy, is we both pay attention to mass movements and mass unrest. So how do political scientists draw distinctions when it comes to what I'm going to call politicized unrest? So what are you looking for when you're talking about, like, how do we draw distinctions, I guess? Well, I guess I'm, uh, when I teach uh, revolution and political development, one of the things I walk through with students is this question of, well, we, we have people, we have mass rallies, we have protests, yep. which are certainly different than people just voting. Yep. But they're often legal and they're often peaceful. And then sometimes they become illegal. Sometimes they become unjustly illegal because, right. because a, 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 an authoritarian government declares a peaceful sure. protest to be illegal. And then sometimes they actually turn violent. And mm -hmm. is that just a continuum of mass behavior or are there clear differences in those kinds of mass behaviors? And the reason I bring this up is because there's been a lot of conversation within the last week 
about whether Joe Biden wants to uh, condemn uh, rioting while at the same time endorsing peaceful protests and whether right. he can draw that distinction or whether that's a distinction without a difference. Trump seems to indicate it's a distinction without a difference, that these people are all rioters um, and there is no distinction. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, so we obviously do make distinctions as political scientists between these different groups based on their behaviors, based on their motives. I mean, so like, you know, you certainly had people, you know, who seem to have some pretty base, like sort of theft motives, right, in some of this. Um, and you kind of wonder if these are just sort of thieves taking advantage of uh, a situation where, you know, like they can do their thing without getting penalized because they're kind of covered by um, legitimate protests, right? So there seems to be some of that with the vandalism and looting and so forth, right? Um, but um, it's also the case I mean, that you have people with very clear political objectives who have organized um, intent and who are very deliberately trying to be peaceful, right? And so, you, and then you get kind of a range of, of people in between. Um, and so I think we do have clear categories. What I think is interesting about all this in this moment is that, you know, kind of that distinction that Matt was highlighting with the conventions comes back in here, um, which is it's almost like we had four conventions, right? There's the one Republicans watched for the Republicans, the one they watched for the Democrats, and then the one the Democrats watched on both sides, right? And that same thing is happening with this issue is, um, you know, what is going on, right? Uh, well, if, you know, if, if you're in the Democratic world, it's a lot of peaceful protests with some people kind of taking advantage, right? And if you're in the Republican world, it's a lot of people who just want to disrupt public order, disrespect the police. And maybe there's some with some legit claims, but um, it's a lot of, you know, kind of just trying to make this administration look bad and kind of disrupt this president, this, this, you know, this country. Right. And so, um, you know, it's very different interpretations of what is going on, what people's intent is. Um, and that makes it, it makes it difficult sometimes to tell because I think both those things are there in most instances. There are people who have some, you know, really um, not good intents, but there are also some people who have very peaceful intent to say, you know, we have systemic injustice and we need to try to deal with it. Um, so it makes it messy to kind of know what what we're dealing with because when you go on different news sources, they're gonna they're gonna portray these very differently, and they do. So, Matt, do you have a sense? Could if, if 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 unrest of the kind that's occurred in Minneapolis in Kenosha, Wisconsin, over the police killing, or I'm sorry, the police uh, wounding of Jacob Blank, yeah. he's, he's survived mm -hmm. in the hospital. Um, are uh, what's happened in Portland? Are are these things likely to impact the election? I don't know. I mean, I think it depends on. Probably depends on those few, those precious few moderates, swing voters in the middle who really haven't decided which side they're they're going to land on, right? Um, you know, and so if if Trump is able to successfully portray, um, you know, Democrats as not taking violence seriously um, and not taking you know uh, security seriously, they might lean a little bit more towards him. If um, Biden and the Democrats are able to say like, hey, Trump is stirring the pot and not be making things better. And hey, he's the incumbent and things are, are really bad right now. If that's more of the message that sticks, then perhaps those swing voters will lean a little bit more towards uh, Biden. It, it's really hard to say at this point. Um, there's only been sort of, I mean, we have had, you know, mass protests um, just prior to presidential elections before in U.S. history. So you get some pretty well-known examples of like um, um, Nixon's, Nixon versus Humphrey in 1968. Um, you get um, a lot of, and you get Republicans, you know, Nixon running on law and order in the midst of all of these protests. Um, and, and, you know, and, and Nixon ran quite successfully. Um, and there's some people that are saying that, well, Biden is just like Humphrey. Um, and this is just going to be a repeat of that. But we're, we're a very different country um, than we were in 1968. Um, the, the country has changed in a lot of ways. Um, a lot of, you know, even white moderates and conservatives are, are more comfortable with sort of racial and ethnic diversity than they used to be. They're more supportive yeah. of sort of racial justice protests than they used to be. Um, you know, the country has changed in that we have a very polarized media landscape. People are viewing these, these um, protests through extremely different lenses and of course um, we have a small sample size we have only a handful of presidential elections that have coincided with protest right so um, so you really it, it's it's almost irresponsible to sort of you know draw these sort of straight lines um, you know from from what happened in let's say 68 to what's happening now um, 
but I think, you know, people who are saying that, um, people who are discounting that this could have a positive influence on Trump are also probably um, not taking that seriously enough either. So I think it could have an impact, but I think we need to be pretty uh, sort of conservative and reserved about what that impact might be. So yeah, I think the, whatever the pundits say, right? So. Like the fluidity of the electorate has really decreased, right? I mean, it's become much more solidified around certain yeah. candidates. So another way to put this is I would say with a pretty high degree of confidence, right? That I think the, the floor in terms of the vote for Joe Biden or Donald Trump, right, is probably, you know, low to mid 40s, right? I mean, even if everything was badly for them, if, you know, the just, you know, like the sky falls for their campaign, I mean, it turns out Joe Biden actually is senile or Donald Trump is caught on tape. You know, I don't know what he would have to do at this point, but you know, caught on tape doing something horrendous, right? I still think they get in the low 40s, right? I mean, right. I think it's just hard to imagine how it drops. Um, whereas in 72, you know, Nixon cleans up and McGovern somewhere like in the high thirties. Right. Um, and even then, you know, the floor was not that low, but it was lower than it is now. Right. So I think the number of voters who can really swing the, um, that percentage of the electorate has really declined. And I think that's an important note. Not to pull a bit and switch on you guys, but I think there is one way that this could matter more, which is that, uh, president or presidential candidates often have coattails. They, yep. Uh, their their ability to campaign uh, specifically can help down down ticket House races and Senate races. Absolutely. And if the public, if massive public opinion is drawing protest uh, specifically in one direction or another, it may make one or more one of the candidates toxic and yep. might limit their coattails. So it might not affect their overall vote outcome, but it might affect their party's ability to hold on to key Senate sure. races or key House races. Sure. Yep. Yep. That is true. Right. Yeah, if they were to decline to their base, I mean, to their floor, right, then that would be very devastating for Senate candidates. Yeah. Especially. Well, let's talk about one other thing that I think is much more likely to uh, influence the November election. And Matt, I'm going to let you lead this off. We're starting to get a little bit nervous about the actual process of the election itself. Now, in a normal year, we would hit that first Tuesday in November and a whole bunch of Americans maybe uh, uh, maybe, uh, 150 million Americans or so would show up to the polls um, at their local polling place and cast a ballot. A small number of them would also request absentee ballots for various kinds of reasons. Uh, those rules vary by state, but we're in a pandemic. How are things gonna look different this year? Things could look quite different. All right, so let me, let me lay this out. So. So the election results um, will probably be delayed, um, but there could also be a lot of controversy over over the actual results themselves um, that could sort of cast doubt on you know the legitimacy of our whole electoral system. So, yeah, so I'm going to paint a doomsday sort of scenario for you, um, and it might not be that bad. And I'm certainly not the first person to come up with this, right? Um, but I think it's something that we should, that people need to be talking about more. And we've really not seen a lot of discussion of it sort of more, more broadly. Okay. So, so 29 states currently allow no excuse absentee ballots so that you can basically send in an application and get a ballot and you don't have to provide any sort of official reason or excuse for it. Right. Another five states already conduct their elections entirely by mail. Um, and so receiving, you know, ballots in these situations um, becomes more difficult when more people elect to use um, the absentee ballot system, right? So a lot of states have this in right. place, but they're not used to the sheer sort of numbers in, involved. Um, so this is true, not merely just with the Postal Service handling the mail, but handling it in a timely fashion. Um, and also um, some of the problems involved with counting particular sort of mail-in ballots. Talk about that in a minute as well. Um, so. So, so basically all the states now are going to have some, for the most part, are going to have some sort of absentee ballot system um, in this election. Um, and th there's little evidence that this is actually going to lead to widespread voter fraud. Um, whatever Trump has said about this, uh, you know, uh, the mail-in ballot system leading to widespread voter fraud, you know, people right. filling out ballots fraudulently. Um, this happens very rarely. You can look at the yep. five states that have straight mail-in ballot systems, like mail-in systems, and it's really not a problem there. So, mm -hmm. so that's wrong. Um, however, there could be some other problems as well, especially as states are expanding the use of the mail-in ballot system. Um, and this has already caused some problems um, in the primaries. So, 
Um, so in New York, um, you saw uh, primaries in June, June 23rd. And many of these primaries were not resolved for five or six weeks, especially in the 12th district in New York. So get this. So in the 12th district, excuse me, so in New York, in 2016, 23,000 people voted by mail. 23,000. Now take a wild guess how many voted by mail this year just in the primaries. 403,000. Yeah, there we go. Which is... Wow which is huge. I mean, that's more than an order of magnitude, right? Yeah. Um, and it turns out, and of these over 400,000 ballots, tens of thousands are being invalidated. So this isn't merely a delay issue, this is an invalidation issue. Um, and ballots are being invalidated for a variety of reasons. Lack of a signature on, on, on the outside of the envelope. Um, a postmark before the primary date, so not, not hitting the deadline. Um, and it turns out that the Postal Service ended up receiving a lot of ballots in time, but they didn't postmark them in time. So they got them in the facility, but they didn't stamp postmark them at the right time. Now, even if some of those problems are solved, we still have some other problems to deal with, uh, with as well. So the participation in the general election using mail and ballots is going to be far greater than what we've seen in the primaries over the past few months, right? And we've already had problems with the primaries. So look for these problems to be much more widespread and much and much deeper. Um, and so that's why I think we're going to be walking into a disaster. And what, you make, what makes this especially explosive is that Republicans and Democrats are probably going to use mail-in ballots at different rates. Yep. So polling shows that 88% of Democrats are in favor of using mail-in ballots, but only 50% of Republicans are supportive of doing so. So this could result in sort of hurting Democrats and also creating misleading election night results. And this could vary by state and district. And either way, this could hurt the legitimacy of the elections in our political system. So if Democrats use mail-in ballots a lot more than Republicans in any given state or district, then that a lot of these mail-in ballots could be invalidated. That means more Democratic ballots could be invalidated than Republican ones. And that could actually that could actually hurt Democrats. So Trump is running around complaining that the mail-in system would actually hurt Republicans. The opposite's actually the case. Um, it could actually help help Republicans and not hurt them. Yeah. So so let me go through the mechanics briefly, um, and then I'll let y'all jump in. So if we could have potentially a, a two-to-one or three-to-one ratio, two or three Democratic mail-in ballots for every Republican mail-in ballot, um, because Democrats are actually encouraging people to vote by mail. I mean, here in Minnesota, in the primary, 60% of people voted by mail. That's a huge increase, right? Now, vote by mail has a much higher error rate than voting in person. Um, and there's two categories of errors. There's the failure rate. So like you never receive your blank ballot or your, your completed ballot never arrives at the election office. So there's the failure rate. And then there's like the rejection rate. And this is because the ballot made it back, but it was actually rejected because you didn't follow instructions or your signature is smudged or it wasn't postmarked um, by the deadline. Now, states that have an all mail-in ballot system have a 2% rejection rate for mail-in ballots. Um, so that's pretty low. So these states that use all mail-in ballots have been doing this for years. They've kind of worked out the kinks. State residents know how to do this. But the error rate is higher for states that only use an absentee system. It's 3 or, three, or, 3 to 4%. But a whole lot more people are in these states are now going to be using the mail-in ballot system. So you could see this error rate, even if it remains the same, times the number of people that mail-in ballots, you could have huge numbers of people having their ballots rejected for some reason or another. Um, yep. And... This is a really major, this could be a, a huge problem. I mean, wrap your mind around this. Yeah. <laughs> In the 2020 Wisconsin primary, there were 23,000 rejected ballots. That was in the primary this year. Right. Mm -hmm. That is bigger than the margin in Wisconsin for the 2016 presidential election, right? This could flip states. With a small number of people voting. Small number of people voting. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. And, and there's far more people voting in the general election than the primaries, right? And we already see margins in the primaries that could flip states in the election. So this could be this could be a real, a really big problem. Um, and so so on election night, what you're going to see is Trump could look like he's winning in a number of key states by a healthy margin, but there's going to be a lot of outstanding ballots. Usually these ballots typically historically are evenly split between Democrats and Republicans, but not this time around, unless something changes, right? Not this time around. Now, 
what you're going to see is as the mail ballots are counted and they trickle in over days or possibly weeks, you're going to see sort of the Republican lead erode in these states or districts. Um, and and that's going to create um, a lot of outcries from Republicans who already distrust the mail-in ballot system, right? And so they especially um, are going to be probably upset with how things go, um, given our the current state of things. So I could I could rant further about sort of signatures and seals and the descent of lawyers on on um, on the thousands of sort of county electoral offices. It's going to be a mess. It's going to make Florida in two thousand look like a cakewalk. Yeah, that's my that's my doomsday projection. Yeah, I think I mean just to reinforce a couple of things you said. One is. You know, in a normal year, right, it is you would expect that the people who vote um, absentee are more reflective of the general population. And so I think the fact that, you know, when three to four percent of ballots are rejected, right, that's bad um, because you're not being able to count votes successfully. But it probably doesn't impact one party or the other. But if one party is disproportionately voting by mail um, and you're still getting three to four percent of ballots rejected, that means that you are disproportionately decreasing that party's contribution to the vote, right? So again, to reinforce what you said, I mean, you know, Trump is saying this is going to be bad for us, but in fact, it might well result in a lower Democratic vote than they actually received, right? Because um, their votes are going to probably be more likely to be rejected. It also, I, I suspect rather strongly, right, has there's a, a socioeconomic line in terms of which ballots get rejected, not because, you know, vote counters are, you know, against poor people, but just because, you know, at certain educational levels, you're more used to filling out forms, you're more used to making sure that you kind of dot all the I's and cross all the T's in a particular way. Um, And when you're at the actual election, you know, um, voting place, right, it's much easier to kind of be guided through that process. When you have to do it alone at home, it's harder. Um, And so I suspect that you're going to get people at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale um, who will be more likely to have their, their ballots rejected. Um, yeah. which creates another kind of layer to this problem. Yeah. And you're going to get a lot more of these fights in the elect- the election, sort of the ballot counting offices as well, because, yeah. because yeah. you know, now it's understood that that pile of uncounted mail-in ballots is going to lean a certain direction, right? And yeah. so you're going to get lawyers, you know, representing yeah. both Democrats and Republicans in the office, and, you know, each side is going to have an incentive to, to count ballots a certain way, because there's going to be yeah. some ballots that probably shouldn't be counted, right? Because, yeah. you know, they don't follow the rules. But, you know, because there isn't a signature or there isn't a seal or it's not postmarked by a certain point. Um, so each side is going to have an incentive to try to um, count as many or as few of those mail-in ballots yeah. as possible. Um, and so you're going to get, I mean, Bush v. Gore, that Supreme Court decision is going to very potentially like enter in in a big way um, come November. And we could talk about that too, maybe as the time comes. But um, but you could get you could get a very protracted series of fights across the country and series of, of cases and litigation really um, that could sort of mean mean a really long delay before we actually know what happens. And in the meantime, you know, everyone's going to be upset. Everyone's going to be worked up and the legitimacy of our electoral system is going to take a big hit. Yeah. And we may not, we might well wrong, not know. But <laughs> yeah. We may well not know too who the you know winner is until December or somewhere in there or even late, later. Right. So I think that that creates, um, some real concern. I mean, th- what's interesting about all this to me is that there's an obvious solution, right? Which is just don't do mail-in ballots, right? Like go vote in person, people, right? And and I think that's really what people need to take away is it's not that hard to go vote in person for most Americans, even under COVID. You're going to the grocery store. It's not more risky to go stand in line at a you know voting place than it is to, to do so at the grocery store. And most states have lots of you know early voting options where you don't even have to really stand in line. So it's probably less risky than going to the grocery store because honest, honestly, you'll be surrounded by more people there than you will at the ballot box, right? So, you know, I mean, I think the easy answer is like, just go vote, right? And and don't don't risk this whole process where you could get rejected for any number of these I-dotting and T-crossing problems, right? Go to somewhere where there's somebody guiding you through it and where your ballot will in fact be accepted. Um, so my hope is that the parties will kind of realize that and will start encouraging their partisans in other ways. but. So far, I think, you know, this has been driven by um, fears that, frankly, are just kind of overwrought. Um, again, there are exceptions. There are always people who need the mail-in ballots, but it is not the numbers um, that are actually sort of requesting them. 
Yeah. And one of the things that concerns me and how the sort of media narratives shape all this is, you know, Trump is out there saying that, you know, mail-in ballots, you know, this is a fraudulent system and Democrats are going to use this to steal the election. Of course, Democrats are responding like, no, this isn't fraudulent. And they sort of are reacting to what Trump is saying, but then they're not, but then they're distracted from addressing the actual real issues that there are um, and, and signaling to their people the importance of actually getting out and, and voting in person so that some of these problems can be mitigated. Um, So, so yeah, just another way in which sort of, sort of conversations and narratives sort of affect people's behavior um, in um, unforeseen ways. Just this to Andy's, uh, um, exhortation to go vote in a polling place, which is that um, normally I, I strongly encourage everybody to vote and I encourage everyone to vote here as well. But there's a special civic duty you're doing. If you are physically healthy enough and of the right kind of age, you're not at risk for the dire consequences of coronavirus, you ought to go to the polls so that you're reducing the number of mail-in ballots so that somebody else who really does need a mail-in ballot has a better chance of having their ballot counted in a timely manner. And I think that's actually the issue here is the timely manner part. What I really worry about, going back to our previous conversation about unrest, is what happens in that interregnum between the first Tuesday of November and whenever one of the two candidacies concedes. And if that time period is one week, two weeks, four weeks, a month, two months, there's going to be a lot of political unrest in the United States over that. And I worry about the consequences of that unrest. Yeah. Yeah, I do as well. Yeah. And I, I hope I'm I hope I'm wrong and I hope, you know, people, yep. you know, get the I get the message of going out to, to vote in person. Or if you have to if you have to use a ballot system, you know, make sure that you've dotted all your I's and cross your T's and send it in early, right? Yep. Um and then and then, you know, what's gonna help too is if if, you know, the election results are clearly in favor of one candidate over the other, um, that could mitigate, um, yep. you know, the potential yep. controversy as well. I mean, there, you know, imagine, let's say if, you know, Trump or Biden, you know, pulls way ahead of the other, um, even if there is there's controversies at lower level races, perhaps if sort of the yep. main the main big race, the presidential race is more clear that could help to sort of mitigate some of the some of the unrest and some of the controversy. That's absolutely yeah. true. Yeah, but but you know, Senate races might be an exception because the control of the Senate is very much up in the air this yep. go around. So. Absolutely. All right, gentlemen, this has been a lot of fun, a little bit sobering. Uh, we will be back in your feed next week. We're gonna, as the semester goes along, we're gonna turn this into a weekly podcast. Uh, there'll be lots more topics to discuss. Thanks for listening. You can always get a hold of us at uh, electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. And make sure you subscribe to the channel we're on, which is Channel 3900. Uh, that will get you not just this podcast, but things like Tweet Victory, Video Store, and uh, Bookish at Bethel, and lots of other great programming from your friendly neighborhood professors. So thanks for <laughs> listening. And until we're back in your feed next time, go Royals. Go Royals.